What's worse, when you fall for people who are wrong for you and you didn't have a way to recognize that at the time, or when you leave a relationship that was actually the good one, but you didn't have a way to recognize that at the time. People who grew up loved and cared for by their parents have what looks like such an easy time defining what a good relationship is. The rest of us, there kind of needs to be an instruction manual, what the signs are that you should be looking for in the other person, in the relationship you have. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Mina, and she writes, Thank you for your content. I have CPTSD and unsurprisingly, I have relationship issues. This is my backstory. I was adopted from an Asian country as an infant after having spent my first eight months in an orphanage. From what I understand, it was quite a shabby place and I have visible scars from that time. So I probably started developing issues early on. Then I was adopted by a pretty dysfunctional couple. My dad is alcoholic and he drank severely when I was younger and my parents argued a lot. When he was drunk, my dad would often talk about wanting to have a son, so I felt like I was competing with a non-existent sibling. When I was a teenager, he cheated on mom and made me an accomplice and nearly drank himself to death a couple of times. And I feel like that's when I started having troubles with my mom too. I feel like there's a lapse in her mental growth. Instead of her protecting and comforting me, I had to do it for her. I think I was a relatively easy child. I'm circling this. I've got the fairy pencil and I'm going to read through this whole letter. I circle what I want to come back to and then I'm going to read it again and see if I can help you, Mina, okay? I think I was a relatively easy child and teenager, a nerdy loner who did my best to please my parents and never seriously rebelled or tried to be very independent. Fast forward into my early 20s. I met a guy who was interested in me and I decided to give it a go because I'd never done any of that before, thinking it would just be a short fling and he would get bored with me in a couple of months and I wouldn't mind and there would be no hurt feelings. But of course, that's when my CPTSD symptoms started to seriously surface and cause trouble. I think I rocked between being clingy and avoidant because I couldn't find the balance and kept worrying that he would break up with me for one or the other. Then he told me he wanted to smoke pot because he was stressed over something. I couldn't tolerate that, but he wouldn't give it up, so he broke up with me. Then he changed his mind a couple of days later and decided he would choose me over the pot. And he has stuck to that. So we got back together and I started working on myself, identifying my symptoms and seeing a therapist. I got better at not doing the hot cold thing, but somehow I always had some kind of dread looming over me and got periodically depressed. It was never formally analyzed as such, but seems likely now. We stayed together for three or four years, but it was hard because we couldn't afford to live together. We each lived with our parents. Also, I was very scared of thinking too far ahead and I would panic when he brought up future plans and I still had that feeling of looming abandonment. Understandably, he interpreted that as a lack of faith in him and eventually broke up with me again. He said I self-actualized it, which is probably fair. I did some more self-work, therapy, and courses like Dale Carnegie, but it was slow going and I felt the progress was pretty limited. Then a few months later, he contacted me again and guess what I did? Not only did I take him back, I agreed to take him back right before he left the country for six months on an exchange student program. 
I did have major reservations about the arrangement, but it felt like sliding down a slippery slope with no control. Mm -hmm. I know now, abandonment wounds, trauma bonding, all that. Anyway, he then came back and back home, and I demanded that for this to work, we would have to live together. I was just out of university, and he was still studying, so we got to live at my parents' renovated garage for a low rent, which we could afford. And we're still here four years later, and that looming dread is also still there. Now, I should clarify that even though all of the above paints him in a bad light, I take responsibility for my part. His assessment of me leading to those breakups was correct, and he is absolutely not a terrible or an abusive partner. He's sweet and frequently tells me how much he adores me and loves me and thinks I'm special and wonderful. He's very good at expressing his feelings compared to me and not afraid of showing affection, whereas the word love feels very foreign in my mouth. Nobody used that when I was growing up. And he's super patient and understanding when I'm having my emotional meltdowns. So he's a good partner when I'm in a crisis. In some ways, I wish I was more like him. He's usually laid back and free-spirited and very adventurous, and if I let him, he could probably help me out of my comfort zone. But I'm more of a by-the-book routine person, maybe stuck in my usual habits out of fear. I find the day-to-day -day living can be dull, though. The classic conflict of dividing house chores is very annoying to me. I often feel like a caretaker. I can't decide which is more frustrating, having to instruct him like a child or having to do it all myself to get it properly done. Maybe, as he says, I'm too uptight about it, focusing on the wrong things. We don't have all that much in common as far as hobbies go, but then again, I know I'm not supposed to depend on him entirely for entertainment. We have very different love languages. He places value in words and I in actions, and they can be hard to synchronize. And I think we're both hurt by it. Then there is the issue of the future. He wants to have children, and I'm not so sure. Though, if in eight years I still haven't come around to his side, is it likely I ever will? I don't feel like I could be a competent parent. And frankly, I question his capacity in that area as well, given his lack of initiative around the house. <laughs> but still, it would not be right of me to deny him that if that's what he wants. I feel a lot of guilt toward him over the issue even though I've been completely honest about that the whole time. I've not been deceiving him or leading him on in that regard. He just decided I would change my mind because that's what he feels is normal. I mean, I kind of do too, but also I'm terrified of raising children and totally messing them up in the head, so basically I fear I would regret doing it and not doing it. On top of that, he does have some drinking issues, which further sways me away from those family plans. He also has an alcoholic father. It might only happen once or twice a year that he drinks to the point of being totally out of it, but it's still very upsetting to me. I would not want to have children to see that. When I ask if he would give it up entirely, if he had children, he says it wouldn't be so bad, but I don't know if, this, if his control can be trusted. I guess our history has caused some dents in my trust overall. Sometimes I feel like I can't really come up with good reasons why we're still in a relationship, so I ask myself, what is he still doing here? Should I be kicking him out? And then all hell breaks loose in my head, and if I try, I'll have trouble talking. And I also have this separation anxiety that makes it hard to breathe when he's going away, even just for a short time. Or if I think about asking him to leave permanently, it's that abandonment melange, I guess. I've tried to talk to him about all these things that bother me, and he has said outright that he would rather leave than not have certainty of my commitment. 
but he's still there. So he pr it's probably not as simple as, as he makes it out to be. Maybe he wants me to make the move because he already did twice. I'm wondering how to sort my thoughts and what to do. Is there something here that could or should be salvaged? Can my trust issues be fixed? Do I judge him too harshly for current and maybe unimportant failings because of what happened in the past? Would it help to get out from under my parents who, by the way, do not and have never liked him? One therapist suggested to me depression medications. I know that's not your thing, but would it be worth a try? Could it help me see more clearly? She also suggested couples therapy. Could it help us talk in a more controlled environment? Or would that just stall what's maybe inevitable? Does it feel inevitable to me because I'm pessimistic and depressed and have abandonment wounds like a colander? Or is it <laughs> like a colander? Or is it actually hopeless? Is it best to just end it? I can't decide if that would be facing the problems or running away from them. And in that case, how would I even go about it? My throat literally closes up just at the thought of it. So how would I even get the words past my lips? I hope you have some blunt advice for me as I'm very confident and confused. And that is from Mina. Mina, I think I can help. Thank you for writing. Um, I think your situation is actually really hopeful. That's my gut feeling about it. I realize that it's ambiguous. I, I don't know you. I don't have every detail that a person would need, but I think this sounds hopeful. And I'll, let's go through your letter and I'll tell you why. All right, so you say you were adopted after eight months in an orphanage and you had like physical visible scars from that time. You still have them. So probably, yes, you started developing issues early on. Um, I think you're a miracle. I think. I think everything you're doing with your life is just nothing but sheer wonder because of what happened to you as a baby. And that is well known to, to, to end up in an orphanage and for eight months. I mean, even babies who are adopted right at birth, sometimes there's like work to do to develop that ability to connect and bond with people. So that dread you feel and that feeling like you're going to get left you know, you're a person too, and you're living in a relationship just like anybody in a relationship. But with that going on, I totally get how it's complicating that feeling. Like, is that feeling happening because this guy's no good? Or is it just like the background noise of being an adopted kid who went through abuse in the orphanage? And then you get adopted by this couple where the dad, he's an the dad's an alcoholic and he was severe. They argued a lot. When he was drunk, he'd often talk about wanting to have a son. So he didn't value you. And when he was a teenager, when you were a teenager, he cheated on your mom and made you an accomplice. You know, oh, Mina, that'll do it. You know, that will do it. That will create a lot of distrust. In your life, I think you're always going to need a way to kind of digest all the residue of that trauma that happened to you. That the things you can't remember and the things you can remember that have resulted in you like never being sure that people are going to be there for you at all or that they're safe or that they're telling the truth and um, or what's going to happen when they drink. So that I think in your life, I would encourage you to support yourself in healing from that. One thing you can do is go to Al-Anon. I went for years. It was fantastic because, you know, I had an alcoholic mom and I was very affected by that. And it helped me tremendously to be in a place where I could go every day if I needed to. I always had a place to go. 
and I could listen to other people working through their stuff. I could do my stuff. And you know, it's a program of recovery. It's a 12-step program. So it's very structured, um, but optional. Nobody has to do it a certain way. And people will help you. And there's something about just like hanging out with people. You find out, oh, I have, I have what they have. I have what she has too. That we have very common symptoms of, of kids who grew up with alcoholism. You've got the double whammy, adopted and alcoholism. But your symptoms sound really common. That thing about dread, that rings a bell to me, okay? So then you say you were an easy kid and teenager. You were a nerdy loner who did your best to please your parents and never seriously rebelled or tried to be independent. So that's a coping mechanism, and it's not a bad one. I think it's one of the better coping mechanisms for a kid who's growing up in a traumatic situation. Um, nerdy loner, me too. And the not seriously rebelling, that sounds like a rational way to deal with alcoholic parents who kind of flip out about stuff. Or your mom, you say she was kind of immature and couldn't really cope with things or comfort you. So, you know, just kind of stay flying under the radar. That sounds smart, Mina. That just sounds like a good coping mechanism. But now, well, now you're still living with them. So there's that. There's still a little bit of that. And they have the disapproval of your relationship. I'm going to comment on that. I think that it would be very productive for you and your boyfriend not to live there, whether you live together or separate, not living there because so much of your trauma is linked to your parents and they have this disapproval. So how are you really going to discern with a clear mind what's going on? From everything you're telling me, I think this guy deserved a period of discernment. I think this is worth taking a look, working on healing your own stuff. All right, he was interested in you when you met him. Um, you gave it a go because you'd never done anything like that before. It's funny, that sounds so casual. It sounds, yeah, it sounds, uh, you remind me, your writing reminds me a little bit of Charles Bukowski, who's a writer I always liked, very matter of fact, kind of talks about hard things in the totally plain language. And um, I like your straightforwardness. It's really easy to kind of understand where you're coming from. Um, you thought it would be a short fling and he would get bored with you in a couple of months and you wouldn't mind and there would be no hurt feelings. That's what you thought. But when your CPTSD symptoms started to seriously surface and cause trouble, that happened. And you rocked between clinging and avoiding him because you couldn't find the balance and you kept worrying that he'd break up with you. So um, I think that's really normal. I think the going between clinging and avoiding, like that's exactly what an attachment wound looks like. And if anybody has an attachment wound, it's a kid who was in an orphanage for the first eight months and then, you know, had the difficulty with the adoptive parents. So that's what it would look like. You know, it's, it's sort of like a jerky car with a sticky gas pedal, you know, <laughs> not knowing how to do it. But you're still human and your heart's still there and you're doing it. You're still, you have formed a relationship. And then what activated for you finally from the sort of like casual indifference, like, let's just see what happens to like, wow, I'm going to be really messed up if he leaves. The abandonment, the fear of abandonment, you got close enough to somebody to have fear of, of abandonment. And it's not that I think it's desirable to be in that fear, but at least it's a sign like you're activating your heart and your attachment. You know, the part of you that attaches and loves is waking up. It's waking up. And I think that's positive too. So then the boyfriend told you he wanted to smoke pot because he was stressed over something and you couldn't tolerate that. So I heard that you don't like any drinking, you don't like any pot smoking. And I don't know where you live. I live in California. Some drinking and pot smoking is just so terribly normal for people, especially young people. Well, actually people my age too, because I'm in Northern California, but it's just really common. It's just how people relax. And, um, but because I went to Al-Anon too, 
I've had periods of my life where I was really uncomfortable around people doing anything intoxicating. I feel much more relaxed about it now. And I think that's because, I don't know, I just feel more secure in myself. I feel um, like my boundary is, if anything feels weird to me, I can just walk out of the situation. Now that said, because I ended up in relationships with people who had, you know, certifiable terrible problems with drugs, they were addicts, they overdosed, you know, I knew that for me, I didn't want to be around that anymore. So I don't, I don't really mind being around people who are smoking pot or drinking, but anything harder than that, I would definitely not be around. And I made a conscious decision when I changed my life and decided to, you know, completely not date anybody anymore until I was very clear how it needed to be. By then I was a mom and it had to be, for me, somebody who did not now or ever have a drug or alcohol problem because that was just too much of a slippery slope for me. So I respect you if that really is your boundary. And I would just also respectfully put out there that it's possible that you are guarding against childhood trauma and taking it out on him. If he wants to get drunk a couple times a year and smoke pot sometimes when he's stressed, to me, it's actually not that big a deal. It's just that it's, a, it's enough of a big deal for you. And because I understand that, that's a legitimate thing. And when you're, you know, the couples counseling, when your therapist said, suggested couples counseling, yes, I think that would be the place to talk about that and negotiate it. Um, is have a structured talk, you know, here's how I feel about it, here's how I feel about it. And what are we gonna do? And work it out and see if you can surface the feelings. That and your question about having kids. So let's get, let's read about that. So you stayed together for three or four years, but it was hard because you couldn't afford to live together. You each lived with your parents. Also, you were very scared of thinking too far ahead and you would panic when he brought up future plans and you still had that feeling of looming abandonment. So that's, I think that's also a counselor thing, something to go much deeper in because um, panicking about talking about the future mostly to me sounds normal for the type of trauma that you've had and that that could be relaxed a little bit through some techniques that we'll talk about. That could be relaxed a little bit or you could, or, or whatever it is that's sort of making you feel dread and like you can't really let yourself go Whatever that is, whatever the truth of that is, if it's because this is the wrong guy or just because you are, in fact, still in your trauma and just having trouble, you know, uh, moving past it towards intimacy, that it's either way sounds true. I don't really know, but I'm kind of leaning towards this is your trauma because everything you've told me about this guy, he's got some excellent qualities and you like him enough that I don't know. I think you love him. I think you do, even though you say you can't say the word. I'm just going to challenge you, you know, to really think about that. Uh, is it true that you don't love him or is it just hard to say? And have you been able to express that? Since he likes words, his love language is words, as you say, um, a good thing to do when you're with somebody is to, is to do things in their love language. And for anybody who is, doesn't know what that is, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an author who's defined like five love languages that different people have. For some people it's touch and some people it's action and some people it's words. And um, So you said for you it's actions. So you probably like him to do things around the house. That's how love is expressed for you. And if he were writing me, I'd be like, dude, you have to do stuff around the house, but we'll get to that in a minute. But you need to give him the words. If you care about him and you want to be with him, give him the words and um, don't lie to him. But but go out of your comfort zone if you must to tell him what, he, what, what is true in your heart about how you feel about him. 
because that means a lot to him. That's how he feels loved and he deserves that. So three or four years, you were scared of thinking too far ahead and you'd panic. And understandably, he interpreted that as a lack of faith in him and eventually broke up with you again. And he said that you self-actualize the problem and you say that's probably fair. So what I like about him is he, you know, he, he's not a total doormat about this. He's just like, look, if this is gonna go on and on that you don't trust me, I'm out of here. But one of the signs, so when my husband and I got mentored in deciding whether to get married, one of the signs we were told is that there's several signs that something is a marriage. And, and one of them is that you find that it's really hard to stay apart. And that scared me because that's also a sign of being like in a trauma bond, right? And I needed help discerning that, but that is why I brought mentors in. You have a therapist, you're writing to me, and um, I'm gonna suggest to you that you also go to Al-Anon and get a sponsor there because clearly alcoholism has affected you here and your discomfort with his drinking. That might be how, that, that might be really how it is with you. It might be something that's just residue and you're gonna relax about it. But I think it's really important to deal with the effects of alcoholism and Al-Anon. It's free, it's so supportive, and you can get mentorship through a sponsor there who can help you with this stuff, who the day-to-day -day things that come up can help talk you through it. All right, that's, before I ever did Crappy Childhood Fairy, I was a sponsor. I sponsored probably 300 women over the years before I ever even started this. That's a lot how I learned how to be of service to other people. And I, I can't say enough good things about it, that people can help each other in that way. For anybody who's like going into a 12-step program, go to at least six meetings before you decide if it's for you. Because <laughs> sometimes you go to one and you're like, I don't like those people and you leave, but keep going, persevere. And my suggestion is get a sponsor very quickly and get the best sponsor you can find. Uh, I initially shied away from getting a sponsor who um, that I thought would be I was like, oh, they're gonna be like really rigorous. They're gonna expect me to like really take this seriously. I wanna get the sort of like easy sponsor. I, that was wasted time for me. All the progress I made was when I got the like, the, the kick-ass sponsor who I had been uh, intimidated by initially. So I like that. You went to therapy and you read Dale Carnegie. And I appreciate that. I read Dale Carnegie when I was very young too. I had alcoholic parents. I needed somebody to tell me like, how do you do this life thing? Like, how do you, how do you be successful in your dynamics with people? I needed it for stuff like getting a job. I applied for a job at McDonald's when I was 16 and they wouldn't hire me. I think I was kind of like rough, you know? So the Dale Carnegie stuff helped me. It helped me know how, how to be friendly and outgoing and appropriate because I, I was basically feral the way I grew up. But it was slow going and I felt the progress was pretty limited. So you hadn't really felt like you were recovered yet, but you were doing something. Then a few months later, he contacted you again and guess what you did? She goes, guess what I did? Not only did I take him back, I agreed to take him back right before he left the country for six months on an exchange student program. So I know that when, when a couple is doomed and terrible, that's what they do, you know, one person keeps trying to hook the other one in. But that is not what I'm hearing here. I'm just hearing there's a certain rightness to the relationship and it's taking time, all right? So it's for you to filter whether I'm right about that or not, but that's what it sounds like to me. He came back, he, he was leaving the country, he was trying to get on with his life, but it just sounds like something in him he knew. He still really wanted to work it out with you. So you took him back and um, you did have major reservations about this arrangement, but it felt, because it felt like sliding down a slippery slope with no control. Um, so it doesn't sound like you guys were living a crazy lifestyle. So when you say it felt like no control, 
that also sounds to me like the way a person feels when they have hardcore you know, abandonment wounds and that getting together with somebody who really loves you and it's inching closer and closer to serious commitment, that would also feel like you know, a frightening feeling of things going out of control because you can't control it. Because you might love him, you might take steps forward to make a commitment to him and I could see how that's scary. So that's, yeah, that's my interpretation. And then you say, I know now, abandonment wounds, trauma bonding, all that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he then came, <laughs> I love your writing. Anyway, he then came back home and I demanded that for this to work, we, we would have to live together. I think that's sensible because if you're going to really discern about a relationship, just go ahead into the, right into the heart of it. So now you're living together. You were just out of university. He was still studying. You got to live at your parents' renovated garage. I mentioned that. You had low rent. Nice. You could afford it, nice, but four years later, you're still there with the people who abused you in the first place and who disapprove of your relationship. So I, I think it'd be very healthy to get out of there. Um, now, I should clarify, even though all of the above paints him in a bad light, not very much, I take responsibility for my part. His assessment of me leading to those breakups was correct, and he's absolutely not a terrible or abusive partner. Good. He's sweet, frequently tells me how much he adores me and loves me. Where do we get more of him, right? He thinks you're special and wonderful, and he tells you so. He's very good at expressing his feelings, compared to you, and not afraid of showing affection, whereas the word love feels very foreign in my mouth, says Mina. Nobody used that when I was growing up. And he's super patient and understanding when I'm having my emotional meltdowns. So he's a good partner when I'm in a crisis. In some ways, I wish I was more like him. He's usually laid back and free-spirited and very adventurous. And if I let him, he could probably help me out of my comfort zone. But I'm more of a by-the-book routine person, maybe stuck in my usual habits out of fear. That sounds like a really, really sane assessment of the situation. But what you've described, he sounds like, he sounds like a dream. He sounds not like a bad, I don't mean like a fake dream. He sounds like the sort of partner everybody would love to have, especially if you have CPTSD, like he can deal with it. And I, would, I just wanna give a shout out to the partners of people with CPTSD because they have to have a certain kind of toughness and deep heartedness to be able to deal with the way we get dysregulated, the, the way we get wonky sometimes. I never advocate that we have a right to walk all over them or be cruel, but just that it does take patience and, and I love everybody who loves us. <laughs> for being that way with us. So what you're describing here, I think sounds like husband material so far. All right. Then you say, I find the day-to-day -day living can be dull. The classic conflict of dividing house chores is very annoying to me. You're also describing marriage. <laughs> I think this is really normal. I'm not saying it's great, but it's uh, the day-to-day -day living together can be dull. And the dividing house chores is often a point of conflict. And yes, the woman does end up often doing more than her share. Sometimes you feel like a caretaker. Mm -hmm. And I can't decide which is more frustrating, having to instruct him like a child or having to do it all myself to get it properly done. Yeah, neither one is a good option, but yeah, what do you do? You're kind of between a rock and a hard place. And I think that we could have a whole video about that issue of chores. And I'll tell you what I do in, in my house is uh, I pick my battles and I don't fight about everything. And then I have come to appreciate, encourage, and support the fact that my husband contributes energy to our family life in other ways. He's not the biggest housework guy. 
Although he's actually doing a great job right now because I'm busy all the time doing crappy childhood fairy stuff. So he's carrying more than his, his weight right now. But he's always contributed a great deal to the life of the family in one way or another. And it took me so long to meet him. <laughs> and I was always so happy that I found him and that he was with me that it kind of helped me get over the day-to-day -day resentment about housework and to appreciate it. But again, he really does bring, you know, he's always, um, you know, he's brought in his income. He's brought in his stability. He's brought in um, the, the way that we are together has just been such a fantastic improvement for me in my life, in my social life, in my career, to have that stability of him that really, when you do, you add it all up, you know, the pros and the cons, I'm just, I just feel really lucky. If you feel lucky in that way, I'd say this is a keeper, okay? Maybe, as he says, I'm too uptight about it, focusing on the wrong things. Yes, maybe. I mean, he could work harder to do his share. We don't have all that much in common as far as hobbies go, so hmm, question mark on that. But then again, I know I'm not supposed to depend on him entirely for entertainment. Yes, I, I think especially these days it's very tempting if you're in a, um, you know, you're living with a partner, it can be easy to kind of go into a little closed system, and that's never healthy. So you want to have outside things, work, school, friends, separate friends, separate social activities, as well as together ones. That's, that's definitely how you do longevity in a relationship. We have very different love languages, yes. Then there's the issue of the future. He wants to have children, and I'm not sure. So this is the one thing that I think could be a deal breaker. But it sounds like you're not sure, and it sounds like he's not uh, diehard fixed that he must have children and he sort of thinks you're going to change and you think you might. This is something to go to a counselor about. Um, you guys are young. You're in your 20s. There's still time for you to be together while you get more clarity about this. I have a feeling about you that you don't actually get steamrolled into things. I didn't hear that you're about to like lose all your boundaries and your preferences and just do whatever he wants. I think you guys can come to an honest, open um, solution to this. And I don't think it's necessarily going to happen right away. But you have the makings of a great relationship. And if each of you is somewhat open-minded on this and you're not 100% in opposite corners, I think there's hope. There's hope that you guys can find the answer to this. Yeah, you said, I, so basically I fear I would regret doing it and not doing it. So that, that's ambivalence. And the fear of having kids and fear of messing them up is really common for people with CPTSD. And I think if you were to spend let's say four years, <laughs> four years, just really prioritizing your healing from trauma and don't worry about the kid decision until then and allow the relationship to continue if that's what the relationship is naturally doing for four years. And I'm guessing you're gonna be about 30 in four years. That would be a good age to make, make a decision one way or the other. I mean, you guys are like this. It's gonna, if you are gonna break up, it's gonna hurt like hell now. It's gonna hurt like hell in the future. If you're very, very honest with each other, I think you have more time to sort this out. And see what you're like when you have more healing of your trauma. See what you're like when your attachment wound is, is more healed and you got more, you know, more solidity there. You, you know yourself more. Also, just you know, moving from mid-20s to 30, there's a lot of maturation that happens. So there's, you know, time is on your side here to have an easier time making the, a good decision. I think there's too good a thing here for you to walk away right now. That's my opinion. Okay. He does have some drinking issues, and you said that, and he said, you said he gets drunk to the point of being out of it a couple times a year. So yeah, I get it. I think that's an Al-Anon question. Go to Al-Anon and talk about it. I can understand the issue, but 
from what you're describing, it's a sensitivity of yours more than it's a problem with him. So that's, that's okay. You get to have a sensitivity. You get to have a boundary about that. But possibly it's something you could live with. And um, uh, trying to control other people's drinking is not the greatest thing. You don't really want to get into it. I would say if you do decide you're going to stay with him, I would completely get out of the business of trying to control whether he drinks or smokes pot. You can tell him how you feel about it, but if he does it, he does it. And then without any kind of manipulation, if you come to the conclusion, I cannot live with this, then you go. That's what it is. But trying to control other people, it's gonna, it, it just kind of like sows seeds for future problems. People change just so they won't get abandoned. It's not a good setup, right? It's not a clear, conscious decision to come together. So sometimes you say, I feel like I can't really come up with good reasons why we're still in a relationship. So I ask myself, what is he still doing here? <laughs> I just enjoy your writing. Should I be kicking him out? And then all hell breaks loose in my head if I try. I'll have trouble talking. I don't know. It's. Do you love him? You haven't said it, but you sound like you love him. You sound like he means a great deal to you. And you also have separation anxiety. So you don't trust that this is love. You, you're, you're worried this is just trauma keeping you attached to somebody. But it's keeping you attached to somebody who's really stuck with you, who's patient with you, who adores you, who lets you know it. You know, who knows you pretty well and chooses to be with you. So I think there's a lot to, there's a lot to suggest here that, that uh, a lot of what's going on are your trauma wounds. And you know what, we never get to be perfectly healed of them, but you can make a lot of progress on them and it really could shift your perspective. I hope you will. I hope you'll really work on that. Um, whatever happens to your relationship, you've been through a lot and you deserve to heal. So I've tried to talk to him about all these things that bother me and he said outright that he would rather leave than not have certainty of my commitment. Okay, guy with boundaries, yeah. He wants some commitment, but he's still here. So it's probably not as simple for him as he makes it out to be. No, it isn't simple. When you love somebody and they it's kind of great, but they're not committed to you. Yes, it's complicated. So you're wondering how to sort your thoughts out and you've got my thoughts. You know, you kind of like told me and I, I've kind of given you my feedback about it. Is there something that can or should be salvaged? Yes. <laughs> can your trust issues be fixed? Largely. Yes, I think. Do I judge him too harshly for current, maybe unimportant failings because of what happened in the past? I think that's part of it. Would it help to get out from under my parents? Yes. <laughs> One therapist suggested to you depression medications. Maybe, you know, I'm not a therapist and I can't really address that, but um, maybe, maybe, maybe that's worth a try. One thing for me, why I've stayed away from them is there's very little protocol for getting back off of them. and. There is a lot of evidence for many people that they take them and at first it's helpful and then it isn't and then what? And it, it starts to create this kind of like chemical instability where maybe there was a solution. But I think, I think it might help. I, you know, I, I can't speak from expertise. I've always chosen not to take them. I've gone on the, on the premise that let's just see what I can do by healing my trauma. And it turns out that a lot of the things that I do, the, my daily writing techniques, my meditation, exercise, staying connected with people has lifted me out of the depression. I still, like I relate to you a lot. I have this kind of cynical negativity, this like grumpiness that shows up often, practically daily. And then it kind of softens back up and goes out. It's there. That's the trauma thing working. So you, you don't want to be like grinding everybody down with that. But I would just suggest that maybe before getting on medication that you try the non-medication things that are more sustainable. 
just try them. And that said, if your therapist was really suggesting it, defer to your therapist, of course. Couples counseling, definitely, I think that would be fantastic. It's not inevitable. You're getting discernment. You're getting clearer and better communication about how you guys each feel, hoping that if you can get that on the table, you can chart a path forward. I think that would be fantastic. Is it best to just end it? I don't think so. I can't decide if it would be facing the problems or running away from them. It's not really either. You're just like all human beings. We're trying to figure it out. You're doing okay. I think you're doing pretty good here. So how would you even go about breaking up? I'll make a video about that in the near future, how to break up. But you don't have to do that right now. You don't have to do that right now, in my opinion. So I hope that helps, Mina. Good luck to you. Write back and tell me sometime how it went. I'm really thinking about you guys. I like you guys. I'm, I'm hoping for the best for you. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.